everybody. I think, my goodness, this has been crazy. Um, we are live. Hi, welcome. I sat down to start this stream and I looked in front of me and there was no camera. I had uh, taken all of my recording stuff with me to a local youth group uh, last week where I was giving a lecture on world religions and spotting bad arguments in world religions. How do we know that Christianity is the one true religion? And uh, yeah, um, I took all my stuff. <laughs> so I just sat down I'm like, ah, no camera. So I've been rushing to get everything. But um, welcome. Hi, my name is Ryan Pauly. Uh, this is Think Well Show geared toward trying to help you think well about the faith, think well about engaging culture and engaging it well. Uh, and today we're going to be doing a live Q&A, the first Q&A of the year. So uh, I used to kind of have these more frequently and then they kind of stop and I wanted to do one to kind of, the, to kind of kick off the year. And so if you have questions, uh, you can send those in uh, in the live chat. If you're watching on YouTube live, if you're listening after the fact, then you just have to follow on social media and know when the next live Q&A is going to be. But if you want to uh, follow and uh, you want to send in your questions in the live chat, uh, live chat, I will be taking those as well as I'm going to grab it right here now, just with all the craziness. I didn't have it sooner. Um, and I'm going to be posting in the live chat the link. So if you want to, there it is. If you want to call into the show, the link should be there in the live chat or popping up soon. If you click on that, I'll send you to green room and, um, and then I can bring you your audio into the show uh, to be able to have a conversation on this stuff. So, um, hi, Slam. Hi, Mike. Good to see both of you here. Um, and so we are going to jump in now uh, to kind of get us started while questions come in. If anyone wants to join and send in those questions, uh, I recently did uh, kind of a um, evangelism, not evangelism training, but kind of an encouragement to high school students on the need of sharing the gospel, the importance of sharing the gospel, and trying to kind of encourage them in their cultural engagement. And and one of the things that I I, I focused on with them, and one of the things I love about my work with Maven is is kind of equipping and, and addressing these big challenges that come up against the Christian faith, so that when you are doing evangelism, uh, you are ready to address those, or at least you have some thoughts on how to maneuver in those conversations. And unfortunately, I think there's I've talked to students who have gone through other kind of evangelism training uh, sessions or techniques or seminars or whatever that may be, and and kind of asking them like, okay, you you were told on on how to share the faith, uh, they kind of went over a strategy, uh, but what happens when you share your faith? What happens when you go through those points and the person says, yeah, but, you know, I would accept, but like what happens if they then raise these objections? And so uh, that's what I want to do. And that's what I enjoy doing is kind of then saying, okay, so how do we then go about addressing these sort of issues? How do we go about helping uh, equip you to respond? Um, and let me see, I think I posted, yeah, I did post the link to call in uh, there we go. There's the link to call into the show. Um, so uh, in a kind of in this kind of training group, um, I, I, I presented this to the students and said, OK, when you present the gospel, what sort of objections do you think people will give? What what sort of responses will they give? Yeah, but and they came up with a list of stuff. And so I want to kind of work through this. And again, if, if your questions come in, if someone calls into the show right now, um, I'll put this on hold and, and that'll be kind of the priority. I want to be doing a Q&A and addressing the things you want to talk about. But I want to work through this as well and kind of help respond to this. And so the first one that these students came up with was this. Um, yeah, I would maybe believe, or that's nice of you to share those things with me, but I just worship myself. 
right? This is all about me. I don't need any help. Um, I just kind of focus on myself and what I want to do. And that matters. I don't need a God to worship. Um, what would you do in this situation? Right. And again, you know, if you watch this show, you know, the strategy, I love to engage with questions and challenge kind of people to think about the things that they are saying. And so, um, I, you know, and, and seeing this, I would go, okay, you worship yourself, but what about the things that you can't do? Do you just point to yourself at that point? Like, have you ever gotten sick? Do you go to a hospital where you need a doctor to help you? Have you ever gone to school where you need learning? Have you ever had to Google search anything because you didn't know it? And, and in asking these questions, you know, there's, there's kind of this claim. It's like, yeah, I just can't do whatever I want to do. I don't need anyone else. I, I just trust myself. It's like, yeah, but we need other people in almost everything that we do, right? Almost everything that we do. I had an analogy with my students the other day of trying to help them understand this idea of like uh, the, the, another challenge came in, a question came in of why do Christians thank atheist doctors when the doctor heals someone? Sorry, why do Christians thank God when an atheist doctor heals someone? Why thank God for that? Right. When the atheist doctor did it. And the whole point is like, okay, yeah, maybe that seems a little weird. But here's the thing from a Christian view, Jesus is the creator the sustainer, the author of everything, right? So think of it like this. If I sent a letter to you through the mail, I dropped it off the post office and the mail carrier brought you the letter. Would it make sense for you to thank that mail carrier for doing everything for the existence of the letter? It's like, no, you can thank them for delivering it. But the problem is, is that without me, the author of that letter, there would be no letter for them to carry. And if there were no letters at all, they wouldn't even have a job. You see, as Christ being the author, sustainer, and creator of everything, right? we ultimately owe him for the foundation of all things. So where did this atheist doctor get the knowledge, the mind in order to do medicine? Where do we get the learning and, and everything that we can do to, to, to understand and know and study the real world to then find cures for all of these sort of diseases, right? Without Christ sustaining and creating everything, the author of life, there is no life to try and save or cure. And so often we see the immediate effects around us. We see the person who immediately helped us with something. And we rightly should give thanks to that person. But we often don't recognize that person is only using something previously created or transporting a message previously given. And so the illustration I gave to my students was, was I took my phone. I said, you know, what if I took this phone, my phone, and I took pictures and I made phone calls and I sent text messages and I went, look at everything that I did by myself. Look at this amazing picture I took all by myself. No one helped me with this. And it's like, yeah, except for like, you know, that little logo on the back of the phone, Apple. You know, without them, without the engineers designing that camera, you have no picture to take, right? Without Nikon, you know, Panasonic, Sony, Canon, whatever the camera companies there are. Without them creating, designing cameras, you have no pictures to take. So yeah, you did take that picture and you should be proud of the picture that you took because it takes a skill to take a good picture, but you can't take all the credit because there's a company that made the camera that you are using. And so I think it's hard for us sometimes to see that that first cause right, where the, that brought this thing into existence to begin with and we only see the immediate effect in our life. But when we stop and think about, we, think about it, we realize, yeah, I... I don't do hardly anything in life without someone else's help. And so this idea of like, I just worship myself. Everything just points to me. 
do you do that when you get in your car and you use a GPS? Do you do that when you go to the hospital? Like, no, there are clearly things that, yes, you can do yourself. You can search something up yourself, but there's a point where you get cancer and it's like, no, you don't just worship yourself. You go to a doctor. And so what we have to do here is we have to take some time and work through the doctrine of sin with someone and say, hey, I get it. You want to focus on yourself, but you have a problem called sin and you are beyond self-repair. You cannot fix yourself. No amount of worshiping yourself or focusing on yourself is going to help you fix yourself. You have to go to someone higher, someone better that has the cure for this. And Jesus has that cure. And so that is, you know, one way in which I, I try with my students almost every year because I have students come in and, and as I go travel around, I have a lot of students that, that have this kind of approach of like, no, I just, you know, this expressive individualism, I just do everything myself. It's all about me and I'll figure this out and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of approach. And it's like, yeah, that, that works for things that you can do with resources given to you. But what about the things you can't do? like sickness, doctors, that sort of thing. And so um, I think that is a way to kind of get people thinking and trying to help them realize that the need for God and the sin in their life. Now, uh, the second thing that these students wrote, and again, if you got questions, send those in. You can call by clicking that link and you get your audio to connect, or you can send them into the live chat, those of you who are watching. Questions on anything. It doesn't have to be just about this. But as I uh, encourage you students, hey, in your presentations of the Gospels, you go try to tell people about Jesus, what objections are going to come up against it. Uh, obviously, it's the God is not real. Uh, well, I don't even believe in God. And, and so this is one thing I want to kind of address slightly different based on a, a video I showed my students today from uh, J.P. Moreland. But we've covered a lot of the arguments for God's existence. Maybe, you know, eventually I'll put a little thing that pops up in the corner and you can check some of those out. Um, but Christians, and this is, I think, key in helping people understand this. When we go share and we're talking about God and Jesus and what Jesus has done, we're presenting the gospel, we are not just sharing our beliefs. We are not just sharing our opinions. We're also not just simply sharing a truth claim. We are sharing knowledge. Christianity gives us knowledge. Now, that is a justified true belief. So, yes, I believe it. It is true, but I also have justification for it. We have a knowledge claim that we are presenting. I know that Jesus died and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. I know that God exists. Not just I believe it or I think it or it's true, but I actually have reason to support it. And so when people uh, look at this and say, okay, but how do we know that God exists? It's often because, and here's a very different way that I've ever really kind of approached this question, um, at least laying it out like this, is that they have a very narrow understanding of what counts as knowledge. See, many people in the world recognize propositional knowledge where we make a claim, we make a proposition, and then we have evidence to support that claim. And so historical facts, right? Abraham Lincoln was shot, right? And that's a, that's a claim, that's a proposition. Then you look at reasons to believe that. And you look at the historical evidence and you come to a conclusion. And we have all these sort of propositional claims of there's a clock, there's a guitar that is behind me, right? And you can use your sense perception to see that and, and be aware of that and know that there's a guitar. And so the statement, there's a guitar on the wall behind me is now a true justified belief. And so that is knowledge. I know that there's a guitar behind me, not just I think or I believe. Um, and that is knowledge. And Christianity gives us knowledge claims. Now, often when we say, I know that God exists, then people say, okay, prove it to me, kind of in this propositional way. Give me some sort of evidence for that. And there are ways that we can do that. And you can go into, you know, questions. And so I would challenge someone and say, okay, 
So help me understand, like, what is, do you believe in God? Okay, no, I, I don't think God is real. Okay, what do you mean by God, right? Who is the God that you don't believe in? Um, why don't you think he's real, right? What reasons do you have to believe that God is not real? And then what arguments or reasons have you heard to believe in God, right? And then if you kind of work through those arguments for God's existence, well, have you considered the cosmological argument, or that would be a crazy way of saying it, like, okay, then how do you make sense of the beginning of the universe without a God? How do you make sense of the origin of life without God? Um, do you believe in objective morality? Are things actually right and wrong? What best accounts for that if there is no God? Right, And so you can start using these arguments for God's existence in the form of questions to get them to think about how do you make sense of these because God is the best explanation for these facts. But the thing I want to say that's different is along with propositional knowledge, there is also knowledge by acquaintance or knowledge by firsthand experience that we can experience something and know it to be true based on our experience of it. Now, this is true of our senses, right? Where you can see, touch, taste, feel, smell, right? Or, or whatnot. And that makes sense. But this is also true of our kind of self-awareness, right? Where we can self-reflect on our conscious state and know something to be true. So I can know that I am thirsty right now. In fact, I am really thirsty. I can know that I'm thirsty because I do a self-reflection on the things that my body is kind of telling me. And I can go, okay, I know that I'm thirsty because this, this is kind of what I am experiencing and how I'm reflecting on my state of being at this moment. And so there are ways in which we can reflect on how we are, uh, on, our, on our state. Uh, we can reflect on things that, you know, on our dreams and things that we experience in ways. It's not just something I, I can smell or taste or feel or touch or, or see, but things that I can be aware of in mental states are also things that then I can claim to know. I have knowledge by acquaintance. I'm acquainted with this thing and therefore I can claim to know it. And so in scripture, it talks about this inner witness of the Holy Spirit, that we can have an experience of God as believers that then gives us knowledge that God is real, that God exists, that is knowledge by acquaintance, that is a justified reason to believe. It is knowledge. It's not just truth and it's not just a belief. We can know that God exists through an experience with him. The problem though, is that this Experience is not easily shared with others, right? And this is where William Lane Craig makes the distinction between uh, knowing and showing that God is real. And so I can know that God is real through an inner witness of the Holy Spirit, through an experience with God, but it's then really hard to show that to you. Just like I can know what I dreamt last night, but it's going to be impossible to show it to you. And I, I can't prove it to you. I also can't um, show it to you. You just kind of kind of trust me. Right, But that in no way takes away from the fact that I know what I dreamt, and that is knowledge. So, so we, we as Christians sometimes allow our culture to say that the only type of knowledge comes through scientific empiricism, that, that something has to be scientifically tested and proven to be real through the kind of the natural world in order for it to count as knowledge and no Knowledge claims can be made on anything that is not scientifically tested. Those all just turn into beliefs, opinions, or preferences, not actually knowledge. And because our culture sometimes saying, says this, it has shaped and affected our, 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 the church to where we start to believe in the things of our faith as just beliefs as well. Or maybe, yeah, I think it's true, but it's just something I believe is true, not something that I know is true. 
And so I think we sometimes have to recognize and get back to this point of I can know that God is real through a knowledge of acquaintance, through a personal experience with him, even though I may not be able to show that to you or prove that to you. You you can't let that person say, hey, because it cannot be tested or proven, therefore you can't know it's just a belief. No, we have knowledge by acquaintance in that. And so uh, in this objection, in this response to God is not real in responding, I would, I would again, kind of go through those arguments for God's existence, put those in the form of a question. Hey, have you considered this? How do you make sense of the beginning of the universe? How do you make sense of objective morality? How do you make sense of the design of the universe? Right. And then recognize that there's knowledge that we can have through an experience of God, also through propositional uh, facts and claims that we can then give reason to believe that our uh, reasons to point that our beliefs are actually true. These students also pointed out, number three on this list, is that I believe or I don't believe I need to be saved, right? And this often I think is sometimes, right, where the good news, the gospel, only makes sense if we give someone the bad news they are sinners. And in fact, you know, when we talk about, you know, what is the gospel? We're like, hey, the gospel is forgiveness through Jesus to give us everlasting life. And it's like, yeah, that's great, but forgiveness from what? Right. And so we sometimes want to focus on the good part because the bad part is awkward, is sometimes uncomfortable for us to share. Right. If I can put it that way. And so uh, the, the whole point here is, is that we cannot forget to point out this fact that, look, God created things good, that we sinned, we are fallen, that we are broken beyond self-repair, that we are deserving of judgment and punishment for the things that we have done that we have all done wrong. And so you can go through the question like, well, haven't you ever done anything wrong? Do you, what do you think should happen to people who have done wrong? Right. And we can work through that. Don't you want justice? I talked about this with Paul Gould in an interview a little while ago. Uh, this idea of like our culture has a desire for justice. I think that's a good thing that we want true justice. We get upset. And maybe that's something, if you know this person longer, this is not just like a street evangelism thing, but you're actually in a relationship with this person, then you can kind of recognize those parts where the person goes, hey, that's unfair. You're like, hey, why? Well, because they did wrong and they got away with it. Or that innocent person is being punished. You don't punish innocent people or you don't let guilty people get away. And you kind of recognize, like we have these deep desires that are ultimately satisfied in Christ. It is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And so we do have to recognize and we have to point out like, look, if we are not giving this to people, like people don't buy things. This is where we need to become better salesmen. People don't buy things unless they think that they need it. Generally speaking, there's there's some good sales pitch. That's why if you watch commercials, iPhone does an amazing job about how every feature is like so much better than the previous phone to where like you, if you finish watching the commercial and it's like, my goodness, the phone I have now is garbage, right? But if you think your car is perfectly fine, like I think my car is great, I'm not going to dealerships looking for a new car. It's not until I realize I have a need or something breaks or some new feature is existing that it's like you almost have to have that then I'm going to go out and get something. So long as I think I'm fine, I don't need it. If I'm not hungry, I don't need a restaurant. I don't need a vending machine. If I'm not thirsty, I don't need the water fountain. And so we have to be pointing people to their need. And so in our gospel presentation, if we are not helping them see the need they have for Jesus first, if you don't think you're sick, you don't go to a doctor. If you don't think you have sin, then you don't need Jesus. And so we have to recognize that need to be saved and that where they are. And so that is the awkward conversation. That is the difficult conversation. We think that we are good people. A lot of Christians, when I talk about why does God allow evil, it's like, no, we're good people. And it's like, look at what Jesus said. 
when they called him good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? For only God is good, right? That our good deeds are like filthy rags, right? We do good stuff, yeah. But does doing a good thing make you a good person? Or is it possible that wicked, evil people do good things, right? Do bank robbers ever stop at red lights? Well, sure they do. Is it because they're a good person and they decided to follow the rules now? It's like, no, it's because there's traffic coming the other way that if they run the red light, the camera will take a picture and they'll have to pay a ticket or a bus will hit them or something, right? It's like students, I ask all the time, like if I just gave you a test and then said, hey, I'll be back in five minutes, I got to leave the room. Like how many students are going to sit there and not cheat versus how many are going to start sharing answers and talking through these points? And I think that's the whole point is that we often do what is right. We do... Things that are good, like not cheat or stop at red lights, not because we're these deep down good people, but because we don't want to get caught. They're done out of selfish motives. So these are sort of questions from a biblical view that I think we can point down to. Look, we are not good by nature. Uh, We are broken. And then how do we kind of help students see this? How do we help people that we are talking to see this? All right, number four. And hey, if you got questions, if you are here, I'm taking, hey, look, hey, a few more people showed up, but there's a live Q&A. So if you have questions, you can post those in the live chat and I will just answer them. Uh, if you want to type them in, you can also click on the link in the live chat and that'll connect you with me and I'll uh, connect your audio to where we can have a conversation on something that you want to talk about. Uh, but I'm working through again, objections to when you're sharing the gospel. Um, and so the fourth one that was brought up is like, well, is God actually loving? Right. And this is a big one. And, and there's been shows on this. I've talked about it much more in depth. But it's like many people are not necessarily asking the question, is God good? But it's God is not. Sorry, is not is it true? Is God true? But they're asking, is he good? Right. And this idea of he is not a loving God. And and I this just kind of came up with uh, I was with a group of students the other day and I asked kind of just what, what are your thoughts on God? And a few of them are like, look, I don't think that God exists because if he's all loving, then he, why is he send people to hell? Why is he doing this? Um, if he's all like this, this is like, he's lying to us. He's deceptive. He, he can't be good if he's punishing. He can't be good if he's doing this sort of thing. And so here's the illustration I use. I said, okay, I'm a teacher, right? So imagine me as a teacher. If I gave failing students an A, like, would that be fair? And of course, the ones who have, you would want bad grades or like want to fail and then still get an A, they're like, yeah, that'd be awesome. It's like, yeah, but for all the students who worked hard, they're like, no, that's unfair. Clearly, if a student never does their homework, fails the test, doesn't try, and you give them an A, that's messed up. You are not a good teacher. I said, what if they do all their stuff? What if they turn in their homework, they spend hours, they study, they pass their tests, and I fail them? Am I a good teacher? And it's like, no. What makes me a good teacher? Well, you're a good teacher when you give, when it comes to the grade, when you give students what they deserve, or if they don't do their work, they don't get credit. But if they do their work, they get the credit for what they've done. You grade them based on what they have done. And I said, no, what if a student is failing and I am open with them and I say, look, I want to help you. I, I want, I'm here for tutoring. Look, I have two hours of tutoring a week where my door is open. You can come whenever you want. It's four days a week. I will help you. I'll work through this. I'll stay after school. I'll talk with you. My door is open. Just come ask. I am here to help you pass this class. And let's say the student never comes. The student never wants to come in, never asks for any help. Is it fair for me then to give them the grade that they earned, the failing grade? 
And all my, and all the students were like, yeah, that's fair. And I said, does that make me unloving? Cause I failed them. They're like, no, because you were nice. You were open. You were welcoming. It was based on them. And I said, exactly. I think there's some similarity here where God gives the invitation. And when people choose to rebel against him and are punished based according to the things that they have done, that's what Revelation says, that those whose names are in the book of life enter into heaven. Those whose names are not written in the book of life will be judged according to the things that they have done. When God judges those according to the things that they have done and they have not said, God, help me, save me, how does that make God evil? How does that make God unloving? If God is, again, forcing people into his presence against their will, where they say, God, I don't want you. And he says, no, you're coming with me anyways. Or people are crying out saying, God, please save me. And he's saying, no, sorry, not going to. You're going to hell. Then that is not a just loving God. But God's justice requires punishment. His love is what is offered to us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That is the love of God. For you to not accept it, for you to not trust in him, you can't blame God as being not loving. That's on you. It's your choice. He has the hand open and he is offering it. Now, maybe there's other reasons why they may give as far as why God is not loving. And if you have other reasons that you've heard why God is not loving, uh, go ahead and put it there in the live chat. But again, that's what came up kind of the other day. And some of the answers that I saw and why someone did not want to believe it's like, look, cause God is, seems like a bad guy for sending people to hell. And I thought that was a helpful way, uh, for at least for students who have teachers to recognize, yeah, that is what we would expect from a good teacher to give people what they deserve as well as offer help and be willing to help if they come for that help. Um, all right. Another one. Um, I have one, two, three, four left, right? So here are four more that I have left. I'll work through these again. If you got questions, send them in. I'm not seeing anything here coming in, but that's all right. We're working through this. The next one says, um, okay, believe in God. Here's the gospel. Do you want to trust him? It says, yeah, but um, I don't want to give up on my sin. And I've had people say this. <laughs> I want to be clear because atheists always kind of get upset. I'm not saying this is all atheists. Um, uh, I do believe that there are people who don't believe at the moment, but are genuine seekers because God has opened their hearts and they're seeking. And then eventually they will come to know him. I talked about this with Tim Stratton not too long ago on the hiddenness argument for God's existence. Uh, but I've had people flat out say, look, if I want, I almost quoting, like I remember this so, so vividly. If I admit that God exists, then I will have to stop doing the things I want to do, right? Sin is attractive and people often don't want to give it up. You see, if you look at the Garden of Eden, if you look at what God, uh, or what Adam and Eve effectively were communicating, where God is like, hey, here's my plan. Here's, here's what I want from you. And here's what is best for you. Here's what is going to lead to your flourishing. Here's what is good. When Adam and Eve rebelled and ate the fruit, it was an act of rebellion. It was an act of defiance. Why? Because they're saying, God, I don't actually trust you, right? I don't think that your plan is as good as you think it is. I want what I want and I want it now, right? And students know this as I work with students. It's like, look, if your parents' rules, excuse me, if your parents' rules are good rules, and you know that they are for your benefit, for your flourishing, for your good, then you're not going to be defiant. You just do it. 
but it's only when you think your parents are taking the fun away. When they are keeping you from doing something that you want to do or, or they're somehow going to ruin your life or take away your fun or whatever it may be, that is when children become defiant because of the fact that they're saying, like, look, mom and dad, I don't think your plan is as good as you think it is. I want what I want and I want it now. And that's what we're going to do. And so we see, I think, in this objection there are people that say, God, this plan that you have for my life to, to flee immorality, that's not as good of a plan as you think it is. That's taking away my fun. This stuff is fun. I like it. I want to do it. I'm living my true, authentic self. These are my desires. And that's part of this expressive individualism of the culture that we live in today, where it's like, live your true self, live your authentic self, follow your desires. And the Christian message is, die to self and follow Christ. Give up your own desires and follow the way of God. Not my will, but your will be done. And so I think that there are definitely people that say, look, I don't want to give up my sin. And at that point, it's praying for them, but saying like, Dude, what, what is your sin going to get you? <laughs> if, like, and let's work through this. We can look at pain and destruction that has happened because of sin and this is one thing I'm doing with my class right now is we just spent like two or three days uh, going through the sexual revolution that is claiming like, hey, the authentic self is the sexual self and we need to free the sexual self and live authentically to who we are in any sort of religion, uh, uh, religion or, or code of conduct or, or morality guiding our sexual attraction or desires or actions is, is oppressive to our true selves and therefore that is wrong. We need to let people do what we want. We want to give people personal autonomy. Do whatever you want. Be who you want to be and, and don't kind of stop me from following the things that make me happy. And I just, I mean, in a simple way, you ask the students to go, is that really best for people to do whatever brings them the most happiness all the time? And clearly it's like, no, because if the rapist is happy raping, we say, no, wrong. That doesn't lead to our flourishing. But since the sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s, we've had 70 or so years to see the consequences. And they're staggering. There's a ton. We see that this doesn't help us. Um, and so this is a big issue that I think that we can wrestle with and say, look, we see the brokenness of our culture because of this, the STDs, the broken families, the kids without parents, the, you know, rape and the Me Too movement and all the, this stuff that has happened. This is not giving us freedom. This is not good. And so trying to point people to another way and help them see something better. I think that's a big thing is it's not just a list of no's, a list of don'ts. I hear that all the time. Christianity is just a list of don'ts. No, we need to point them to the beautiful, life-giving, flourishing picture of marriage and beautiful sexuality that God has created. Not just that's bad, stay away. But look at this. Look how amazing, look how good. And I think it's often that shift of focus to what is beautiful versus not just, just not, don't do this. Um, that we sometimes can make. So um, awesome. A few questions did come in. So let's jump to the live chat. Amber, thank you so much for sending this in. Uh, here it is. Let me kind of get that centered for us. Um, it says, now why is that covering? There we go. My 10-year-old asked why God is good if kids get hurt and die. I try my best to provide an answer, but it doesn't seem clear enough for a child to understand any ideas. Amber, this is such a good question. And, and it's hard because when you're talking about children dying, um, it's just difficult. 
And I have a video on this. Um, I can post to it and I'll, I'll put it up in the corner uh, eventually later for a tag. Uh, and I get a lot of negative comments, like, how dare you say that? And I've I even had people like wish death upon my son because of how they thought I was kind of flippant in this video. Because there's, what we have to recognize is that people who are going to watch this or listen, like maybe they have experienced this where a child has passed away, right? And there's an emotional problem of evil they're, they're going through and they need love and counsel and care. And then there's maybe like what you're saying, your, your son is asking, I'm just trying to understand intellectually. Excuse me. So um, from an intellectual perspective, here's what we have to understand. I would ask your son, I would say, okay, so what do we want? Do we want no kids to ever get hurt or ever die? Is, is that kind of what we're hoping for? And if the answer is yes, okay, then you say, okay, um, until what age? At what age? Because I, I mean, I hope that no one would ever die, but then we live forever on this earth. And that's also not a good thing is to be stuck here on this broken earth forever. Right? There's a beauty to, to God removing Adam and Eve from the tree of life uh, to where death will actually eventually get us back reunited with God and this evil done away with uh, rather than living for eternity on this broken sinful planet. But, but until what age? How long should kids be able to not get hurt or die? Until five, until seven, eight, ten years old? Until what age? Obviously, let me take a step back, kind of in, in responding to that emotional thing, to recognize and to, to empathize and say, yeah, man, isn't that terrible? We, it should break our hearts when young children get hurt, when young children die. That is so sad, right? But then we say, okay, so until what age? Back to the intellectual response. And then the question is this, okay, let's say no kid could get hurt or die until... I'd say like eight years old. A um, couple things. What would they learn? Would they learn the consequences of bad actions, right? Yeah, I baby-proofed my house for my son. I wouldn't have to baby-proof. I wouldn't have to do anything. Like he could do literally whatever he wants and he would never, ever, ever get hurt. The problem though is that pain is a valuable teacher of lessons to when you you know, start running and trip or when you put your hand on that hot thing and it burns, it teaches you don't do that anymore, right? God created us with pain receptors because pain is actually good. It tells us there's something wrong. Imagine if you had no pain in your hand and a little kid like put his hand on a hot stove, but didn't realize it was a hot stove because felt no pain or anything and just left it there until like the skin is like scarred terribly, right? The fact that you touch it, go out, saves you in a sense. And that hurts. But imagine an eight-year-old could not get hurt, could not die. What are they going to learn? And all of a sudden at eight years old, you expect them to be able to make good, wise choices, right? There's things that right now, my son at 14 months old, there's already things where it's just like, okay, I'm going to kind of let you go there a little bit, right? Just a little bit here and there. And then when he bonks, it's something It's like, all right, you know, <laughs> try, try to learn, like how do we need to do that? And I'm not letting him throw himself headfirst over the bed, right? We would stop him until he learns how to crawl himself down. So there's certain things. And then the other question that you could ask is like, what would that do to parenting? If I as a parent knew that my son could not get hurt or die until eight years old, it's like, go playing the street. Like, you know, there's like, there's such a watchful, careful eye that we have to care and, and protect and love our children because we know what could happen to them. I think if kids couldn't get hurt or die, it's like, yeah, go, go play and have fun. Good luck. And I think this could lead to some terrible things. And then again, all of a sudden at eight years old, now the parent has to start caring or, or like what's going to happen at that point. And how do we make sense of that? 
And so my short answer, and I have an article on this as well, and and, uh, and I'll post it. Uh, it's on my website. If you go to uh, think-well.org um, and search like um, the problem of evil, I think it's, I have a resource uh, that, that, that'll come up on, on a paper I wrote. But my short answer is this, like kids get hurt and die because we live in a natural world with natural consequences, right? We, we have these wonderful things like water to give life, but that allows for drowning. And we have wonderful things like gravity that hold us to the ground, but now people can trip and fall and get hurt. And we live in a natural world where there are natural consequences so that we can learn those consequences. And so this is one reason why uh, children die. Now I'm kind of curious uh, if I can search this up here really quick because um, I'll find the exact link for you. Um, problem of evil resource. I think that comes up if you type that. Let's see. Yeah, there he goes. Apologetics resource responding to the problem of evil. Question number two, why does God let children die? My short answer is this. Children die because they're born into a fallen world where there's disease and where people sin and make mistakes, right? Sometimes kids get hurt because of the mistakes of of an adult. And so we recognize, and this helps us learn and be better. And so I think maybe this is something that can help. Uh, again, if you uh, go to, uh, again, my website, think-well.org, why does God let a child die? Answer to the skeptic or the atheist uh, is another kind of resource there. Um, you know, I quote some people where it says, you know, the gravity that keeps us on planet Earth also enables fatal falls. The fire that warms also burns. The water which allows for swimming, we can also drown. And so if we really don't want kids to get hurt, it's like we want God to like make them superhuman uh, and to which then they, I don't think they learn valuable life lessons worth learning uh, or um, he like changes the laws of physics every single time something is going to happen to a kid. And again, that we don't learn from that. And so my last thing here uh, that I would say, Amber, is this, what is God's goal? Is God's goal again for us to learn to grow, to mature, to eventually get to the point where we can enjoy him forever because this life is not the thing necessarily that we're created for. It's a very temporary point of our eternal existence. Or is it for us, again, to live forever now? And again, I think we need to weep and be saddened by the loss of of kids' lives and when they get hurt, but recognize um, what we learn and look and if that you know, uh, what we believe about children, all that kind of stuff, uh, going to heaven and what God ultimately desires. So Amber, thank you so much for that question. And, um, I hope it was helpful. All right, let me go to the next question, uh, from Mike, uncle Mike. (laughs) Um, all right, here we go. Would you say it's harder for a person to accept Jesus if they grew up in a non-Christian home as a kid? How do you connect? This is good. Um, I, my first thought on this is there's obviously more opportunity, more exposure to Christianity for kids that grow up in Christian homes. But then I think sometimes that leads them to be like, I don't need this. Right. Like, and it kind of gives them a, a skewed view versus like there are times in, when kids grow up in non-Christian homes. And I know people like this, that then they were first presented the gospel. It's like, oh my goodness, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've needed. And it's like a quick acceptance. First, I think there are kids in Christian homes that think they're Christian because they grew up in a Christian home and they're not actually a Christian home. And so they're disillusioned. They're, 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 they're not even aware of their true state. And so that's kind of the first thing that pops up into my mind is that sometimes being in a non-Christian home, uh, when we hear the good news, we go, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> like the first time you ever eat a certain kind of food, it's like, oh, that's amazing. But if you grow up eating that food, it's like, yeah, that's just, you know, what we eat. 
the other thing I would think is this. Again, this is based on a lot of theological beliefs that I hold that I'm bringing into this, and I've done some shows on that. Um, but I, and I talked about this again with Tim Stratton in the conversation on the hiddenness argument for God's existence. But my view is this, is that everyone who would freely believe in God will freely believe in God. I don't think that there's anyone who, if uh, that, that is born into a non-Christian home, that just never gets shown uh, the gospel and they go into eternal separation from God, they're sent to hell. And it's like, well, God, I would have believed had I been born in a Christian home, or I would have believed had I been told the gospel. I don't think that person exists because God knows who would freely believe when given the chance. And for all those who would freely believe, he will give them the chance. And so I, I think it may be harder in the sense of it's not as in their face in a sense if they're not constantly exposed by going to church on a week by week basis. Um, but it's not harder in the sense that, look, it's God that is the one that is doing the work. And so he is going to save and he will re- reveal himself to them. Excuse me. And, and then that person will come to a saving knowledge of him. And so it's not like uh, God is having to work harder um, or, or that nature. And so I think it can happen maybe both ways. And so um, hopefully that makes sense um, as kind of thinking through. And I think that's a good question of understanding uh, how we respond to people who know God uh, in a Christian home versus not. Um, all right. Uh, so back to, I guess, the first thing, if there are no more questions, Amber, you are welcome. Um and uh, some, I think it's true too. Children often go through a lot of stuff with more resiliency than adults. And maybe God does have a special hand of protection over children. Uh, again, if there are more questions, feel free, send those in uh, to the broadcast. And let me, uh, here, let me, I don't know why I didn't just do this. Here is, um, here's the link to my child, my article. I didn't realize I need to post right here. Um, uh, Lauren Ellis, uh, does that view stem from a Molinist perspective? Yes. So I do hold to Molinism. Uh, I'm a Molinist. I believe uh, that, that God um, has uh, middle knowledge, that he knows knowledge of all counterfactuals. Uh, he knows what people would freely do given certain circumstances. And so, um, yes, so definitely uh, my view on um, on salvation and, and, and that answering that question of what happens to the unevangelized, what happens to the person who's born and raised in a family and knows nothing about God. In fact, actually on that same apologetics resource, uh, there's another question on that, and I can post that here too if I can find it. Um, is it question one? Nope. Question. Is it, I had to write this for a, a paper. Um, uh, in my Why Does God Allow Evil class, where I had to answer 10 different questions, and I turned it into 10 different blog posts on my website. Uh, there it is. Uh, question number six If conscious belief in Jesus uh, is required for salvation, I'll post it here uh, if anyone wants to check that out. If conscious belief in Jesus is required for salvation, what happens to those who have never heard the gospel, who are born in that family uh, that Jesus never responds to? My short answer again is God will make sure that those who would repent will have the opportunity. That is my super short answer. So again, if, if we're having kind of evangelistic conversations, what this show is talking about, and someone's like, yeah, but what about those who have never heard? It's like, well, God will make sure that those who would repent will have the opportunity. Now, you can maybe leave it at that and they go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Um, but then if you say, uh, then they go, well, how, how do you know that? Or how does that make sense? Then you kind of work through the specific details of it. Uh, but that is, again, the short answer. And yes, my response there does come from a Molinist perspective. Um, you're welcome. All right. So uh, kind of going back to this. Okay. I don't want to give up on my sin. Um, I don't believe in an afterlife. 
uh, here's what's interesting. It's like, yeah, if the person is not a Christian and you're like, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven. It's like, well, I don't believe in afterlife. It's like, I understand. Um, now you can say, okay, well, what do you mean by an afterlife? How did you come to the conclusion that there's no afterlife? Because if they are a secularist, well, of course they don't believe in an afterlife. They, because they don't believe that there's a life after death. They don't believe in the supernatural world or heaven or hell or God or anything like that. Um, and so it's not based on what do you believe in. It's based on what is true. And what do we have good justification to believe? And so I think, again, we can come back to this, what we talked about at the beginning. I can know that God exists and I can know that I'm going to heaven. And I can know that there's a heaven or hell and, and what is happening because of how God revealed it to me. Now, again, I, today was supposed to be a conversation with an atheist uh, who deconverted from Christianity. Um, and we we're going to talk about his story of, of why he walked away from the church and kind of walk through some arguments for God's existence that had to be postponed. And so you can definitely look for that in the future. But when I published this on, on Facebook, I said, hey, I'm interviewing uh, an atheist today talking about his deconversion story. Um, response is saying, well, there is no such thing as true deconversion. Right. If 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 um, uh, if they walked away, then they were never a Christian to begin with, and they're just kind of in this sinful rebellion. And it's like, well, yes, in a sense, I I agree with that. Right. I, I do believe, uh, and I've talked about this before, and, and once saved, always saved. That your salvation is secure in Jesus, and that's how I can say I know that I will be saved, because it is Jesus who guarantees it, and we have Scripture that talks about this knowledge of that. Um, and so I'm confident in that knowledge. But the response that came when this was posted on my, uh, on Facebook, someone responded is like, well, how do you know what someone believed? Right. And the whole point is, well, I don't know what they believed. <laughs> I don't know what was going on in their head. I don't necessarily know their reasons until they tell me. But if scripture says that once you are truly converted and saved, you cannot walk away, I don't have to know what they believed or what they thought or what was inside their head to know, look, if you walked away, well, then you weren't saved because that's what God said, right? And God is the one who knows all things. And so I'm going to trust God. And this is where my perspective kind of changed on this. And I've talked about this a lot. So I'll be quick here. Um, but that's where my perspective changed. It's like, I thought for many times I heard people tell stories of like, well, I was a Christian. I walked away. I was a Christian. I walked away. And I'm like, well, I guess it's true. You can't walk away because that's what people are experiencing. But when I became convinced of the textual evidence that scripture reveals that I don't think that you can, then while we think that that's what we're experiencing, we're not. Well, you think that maybe is what happened. It didn't, right? Because we have to contrast that it's, it's a person's experience versus what God revealed. Again, that's based on an interpretation of scripture that not everyone agrees on. But if that is what God has revealed, then our experience is not accurate. And so the same thing here is that if God revealed that there's an afterlife, even though I have no proof of it, well, the proof is in Scripture and what God has said. And now that's not circular reasoning because I have evidence and reasons to support the truth of the Word of God. And so my belief in Scripture is based on good reasons. Then Scripture reveals this, and therefore that also then becomes true. And so, yeah, I wouldn't expect them to believe in an afterlife uh, if they're not Christians, if they're an atheist or a secularist. Uh, but that's part of the Christian story, that if this stuff is true that we're talking about, then an afterlife is also true. Um, two more here as we kind of wrap up our time together. Um, second to last one, you share the gospel and the person says, I'm sorry, but I am too broken. It's too late for me. Here's my analogy that I give students for this. Now, it also is a helpful analogy in responding to this idea of like, how is it fair that someone trusts God at the very end of their life? And they get into heaven and, and the other person and follow God for 40 years and they get into heaven. Like, how is that fair? And the fairness is this. 
I'm a teacher. Oh, a lot of my examples are teaching examples. How is it fair if I give an assignment and I say, look, you have a research paper due. Like, for example, I'm in my doctorate right now. All my research papers are due on April 17. All right. So I have a ton of books I'm reading. They're all stacked up above me right up here. If you want to know, we can talk about those later. Um, but uh, a massive amount of books I have to read and write papers on. It's all due April 17. Now, if I turn the paper in tomorrow and I write it perfectly, I get 100%. If I turn that paper in on April 17 at 11.59 p.m. before it's due, right, if it's, I made the cutoff and I write it well, I get 100%. How is it fair? How is it fair that the, if someone does it now, three months early, versus someone does it the very last second, why is it fair for them to get the same grade? And the whole point is because they turned it in in the amount of time that they had to turn it in. Now, I think there's sometimes there's benefits of following Christ your whole life. So it's not the same in that sense. And we can talk about that if you want later. But the whole point is, is it's not too late because it's made it before the time that it's too late. And so when you take that same perspective and you say, okay, when is it too late from God's perspective? I think the cutoff that scripture teaches is death. I don't think there's a second chance after death, but up until the point of death, you have the opportunity to follow Christ for him to renew you, restore you, and to become a new creation. And so if the person says, I'm too broken, that treats God as if he doesn't have all power to cure and save all disease, but from a God who created and sustains the entire universe, and I think I'm a little bit too broken, no, that, that takes away from who Jesus is and the sacrifice that Jesus did. To think I'm, I'm too, it's too late? No, it's not too late. Are you still breathing? Are you still alive? Okay, it's not too late. We have up until the point of death to make this uh, choice. Um, so, um, and so uh, I, there's not too late. It's not too broken. And maybe sometimes it's like, no, God has given us a due date. <laughs> as long as you get it done before the due date, you're good. And the due date is your point of death. You're still alive. It's not too late. Um, I'm looking at your comment, Lauren, and I'm not quite sure. Yes, please do book or research material recommendations. Yeah, so I am. Oh, yeah. So I, I've, I've posted a couple in the, here in the live chat, and um, eventually I'll come back and I'll kind of put stuff in the description below on YouTube because I'm saying a lot. And sometimes I forget what I'm saying because then I have to go back and <laughs> re-listen to the whole thing. I'm like, ah, I need someone marking down all the things I've said. So um, here's the last one. Fear of rejection, specifically from family, friends, etc. This is real. What if I tell my loved one about God and they reject it? Or even what if I tell them about God and they reject me? I once had a student say this, that if I admit, if I became a Christian, I think the first one was if I admit that God exists, I have to stop doing the things I want to do. The second one I remember is that if I become a Christian, my friends will look at me differently. So this is his reason for like not wanting it. Is that his friends will reject him. But I think at, some, uh, at times Christians like us, we also have a fear of sharing because what are they going to say about me? And again, this is where we see this again in scripture. This is not new, right? We're like, you know, Jesus says the rich young ruler, like sell your possessions, follow me. And he goes away sad. Like he doesn't want to give up his stuff, right? That's like, I won't want to give up my sin. But there's other issues that are, that are very, very similar of like the cost of following Christ, there's a super confusing verse on this about hating your brother and your father. It's not literally hating them, but it's like, look, you have to put Jesus first. And that has to be the priority. 
And so it's much easier said than done, but it's like, look, um, some atheists, some atheists said this once and it's something like, look, if you had a cure for cancer and you didn't tell people about it, like how much did you have to hate them to not tell them? And then he said, I think, you know, and then he applied that to Christians. If you really, as Christians, you really believe that you have the cure to their disease, sin, that without it, they're going to die and suffer eternal punishment. And you can, you can give them the message that will save them, the person of Jesus, the power to save the gospel. And you don't, how much do you have to hate that person? I think that's at least something to, to really consider and be thoughtful of is like, yeah, I may be afraid of being rejected, but because I don't want to get rejected or I don't want to lose some friends or I don't want people to think differently about me. I'm going to allow for this person to possibly spend eternity in separation from God. Like we have to, I think, again, it's easy to say it's hard to do. We have to step back and say, what is truly most important? What really matters? And their eternal destiny is way more important than I think we often realize. And so that is something I, I would just encourage and say, look, if you truly love someone and they are hurting themselves, if you truly love someone and they are doing something that's causing physical damage, or you, I truly love my son and he's about to run into the street, why would I, like, no, you, you grab them and you say, stop, wait, think, please. Like, how does it make sense to go, well, yeah, but they might get mad if I grab their hand and stop them from doing something. It's like, yeah, they might but what are they getting mad about? And what are you doing and what are we called to do? I think the same applies uh, for a lot of us, you know, talking about, I'm reading a book right now for my program on, on, on sexuality and gender identity. And it's like, this one guy talked about, like every time I talk about sex, gender, marriage, I was very like apologetic, like, you know, it's not as bad as it sounds like it is, but you know, here's, here's what the Bible says. And he always approached those topics from that kind of perspective. Maybe I added a little bit like that to make it exaggerated, but he said he always addressed it in a very apologetic tone and was very kind of defensive until one day he heard someone talk about the beauty and the goodness and the flourishing that comes from God's design for sex and marriage. And he thought to himself, why do I try to shy away from what God calls beautiful, even when the world calls it ugly? He said, from that day forward, I vowed to never be apologetic or defensive about what God calls beautiful. And I want to say with everything in me, marriage and sexuality, the, the view that God has, the call that God has on your life, it is not outdated. It is not bad. It is not a, a broken thing. It is not to, to take away your fun. It's this beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing that leads to your flourishing. And yeah, you may not like that I'm saying that, but like, I don't have to try to make God look better than he is. I can't make him look better than he already is. He's the best. I just want to present it the way that he has done it. And it's easy to say. And that at least gave me some courage. And last time I talked about this topic to do that. And it was amazing. It actually was amazing. Is the last time I, after reading that, I addressed this issue very confidently. And I saw students who were previously not as confident, kind of raising in their confidence in responding and sharing their thoughts on this stuff as well. And so you never know how a confidence in what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for other people, the knowledge that we have and confidently sharing that knowledge, what it actually can do. And maybe that person doesn't change, but someone else maybe is overhearing or sees that and that reflects. And so um, I hope that helps. These are some of the, again, the objections that these students brought up and saying, look, this is what I'm afraid someone will say. 
when I share the gospel. And hopefully this resource helps people kind of think through these points. So as we finish up our time together, I just want to say things are getting kind of crazy right now as far as schedule wise. So I'm in my doctoral program, studying a doctor of ministry and engaging mind and culture, trying to then use that information to help you better engage or engage your mind so that you go out and engage the culture. A lot of fun. Super excited about that. I also want to say uh, all, thank you to all of you. Man, I don't know if I said this. Um, we did an end of the year giving uh, kind of challenge where a generous donor offered a $5,000. That's we got a small little ministry of think well five thousand dollar matching donation uh, and we exceeded that uh, raised about 22 or so 21 22 somewhere that uh, percent of uh, the yearly budget uh, with what we raised there and so super excited uh, kind of where the ministry is going and things are getting crazy so I'm doing two or three four events a month I, I'm doing online events I'm flying to Florida in a couple weeks uh, next weekend you can be praying for that um, the maven parent conference if you live in the Southern California area the maven parent conference conference is on February 24 and 25, focusing on answering kids' tough questions. Uh, that is coming up, something that you definitely want to check out. I have other events uh, in February at the OC Rescue Mission, Ground Zero. Um, uh, there's a youth summit up in Bend, Oregon. So if you're up in the Bend, Oregon area, I'll be up there in March 17 and 18. And I'm looking at my calendar. I don't know what else there is, but there's a ton of events. So I'd love for you uh, to be praying uh, through those and, and for me in those. It's a busy time uh, as well as traveling, speaking, doing this, studying, being with a family uh, and all good things, but so, so much fun. So again, the interview or the conversation that was supposed to happen today with the atheists, uh, that is going to be postponed. Hopefully you can get that done next week before I fly out to Florida. Um, if not, it'll be happening very soon and I'll keep you up to date on that as well. So with that, thank you so much for being here. If this has been an encouragement, share it, like it, subscribe. I want to continue to be a resource for you in helping you think well about the Christian faith and think about culture well so that you can engage it well. There's a lot of other videos that'll pop up uh, to help you do this. Um, and if you want to continue checking those out, there's a lot of content to help you in those things. So with that, I pray that you continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Thanks for being here with me, everybody. Have a blessed and wonderful rest of your day. God bless. Your love will guide my